What happens when an indoor family tries bonding over outdoor activities? Or when a teenager inadvertently picks up a job working for members of the mafia? Each month at Hopewell Theatre, questions like these are answered when a rotating cast of some of the most hilarious and moving storytellers around take center stage and tell all. Recorded live at Hopewell Theatre in Hopewell, New Jersey, ladies and gentlemen, this really happened. Welcome to Storytelling at the uh, Hopewell Theatre. I am Joey Novick. I'm your host for the evening. Thank you for coming. Excellent. Excellent, excellent. For those of you that uh, have never seen storytelling before, how many people have seen storytelling somewhere? Applaud? No, no, applaud. I can't see hands up in the air. Applaud. That's great. So uh, you're going to be hearing some wonderful stories tonight. You're going to be hearing stories that are funny, stories that are moving, stories that uh, are about New Jersey, stories that are about their own lives. So, uh, and I will be your host. If uh, you uh, uh, get tired of me, you can uh, just sort of look at me now. Thank you very much. But I want to start off with a story about how I came to live in New Jersey. How many people do we have here who are originally from New Jersey? From New Jersey? Welcome. So I moved out from New York City to New Jersey about a number of years ago, and I moved to a small town called Flemington, which is a little bit north of here. And um, I had a problem with my neighbor. Um, we have a neighbor, he has a dental practice, and we had a very typical problem across a fence, the way neighbors will, and I called up the local borough hall, and I was told to come to a borough council meeting and make my uh, complaint to the mayor and to the borough council. And my girlfriend, Rosie, said to me, look, when you go there, uh, be friendly, be affable, uh, don't be an asshole, you know, don't try to tell any jokes, you know, just, Get up there, tell your problems. So I went to the borough council meeting, and I, I got to tell you, I, I, if you've ever been involved in government, it, there really is nothing like going to a local borough council meeting. They were sitting up there talking about uh, property taxes and sewer rates, and I was just completely bored out of my mind. And then I decided uh, they had uh, public comments. So I got up there and I talked about my problem with my neighbor, and I was, inter I was interrupted a few times by a guy who was sitting up there with a very bad toupee, a, um, a, a shirt that looked like it really didn't fit him very well. It was, uh, wearing, he was wearing glasses. He was uh, up there as the acting mayor, and in the middle of it, he just interrupted me and said, uh, you know, you have to go and tell the zoning officer. We'll give you his number. So I sat down, and Rosie said to me, don't leave the meeting. Stay until the end so you can thank the man, right? So I sat there for another hour. At the end of the meeting, I walked up to him, and I put out my hand. And you know that time when you put out your hand, and they just look at it, and they don't, they don't shake your hand? How that makes you feel? My hand was out there, and... He asked me where I was from, and I said, oh, I um, am originally from New York. I just moved out here about six months ago. And then he interrupts me and says, oh, you just moved out here six months ago, and you come here and you start a lot of trouble. And I, you know, I'm trying to be friendly, and he, the guy's name was Bill Reed, so I figured I would tell him a little joke. And I said, oh, your name is Bill Reed. That's a great name to have because uh, that's what you guys do here on council. You read bills. Now, he didn't think it was funny either, so 
So I left the meeting, and it was a very bad experience. And about six months later, during campaign season, I get a knock at the door. It's a local Democrat who is a guy who's running himself. We get to know each other. I get a little involved in the Democratic Party. And then a couple of months after that, this guy says to me, look, I know you're a comedian. You've been raising money for different groups. How would you like to run for borough council? And I looked at him like he was completely out of his mind because I had never been involved in politics before, but he promises me a beer and a burger at the Union Hotel. So I figured I don't want to be rude, I don't want to turn down his food. So we go to the meeting and you know they're talking about raising taxes, they're talking about sewer rates, and I'm thinking they've not resolved these problems in eight months. I can't believe that. And I'm sitting there and I'm bored out of my mind. And then I asked the one question that would change my life forever, which is I asked my friend, who would I be running against? And his hand goes up very, very slowly and he points to Bill Reed. <laughs> and I said, oh, I am so in. So we go out to have that burger and a beer and we basically create the campaign. I am so excited to run because this guy was such an asshole. I'm thinking this is going to be great. I'm going to have some fun doing this. And then I have to go home and I have to explain to Rosie that I've decided to run for borough council. And of course her answer to me is, oh great, you don't have enough time to mow the lawn, change the cat tray, go on the road as a comedian, but this is what you want to do? And I just give a very meek, yes. And she says to me, well, you just want to do this because you want to get attention, you want to be able to make fun of the guy, you want to be able to be up there and just tell jokes when you're on council. Now, my inner voice was saying, yeah, that's what I want to do. But externally, I'm going, no, I'm going to be very serious about it. I'm concerned about the community. And she says to me, well, at least go to the meetings, read the newspaper, read the ordinances, learn the issues. But I'm thinking internally again, that sounds like way too much work. So what I decide to do is I, um, I, I'm told that I need a picture of myself for a palm card and I have to make up a little, you know, like a, a campaign brochure. So I decide to take the picture that I used as an actor for soap operas. And I sort of look like a very like, very good looking, you know, and it was, it was not a good picture. So I knock on my very first door, and there's a woman there, I remember, it was Shirley Dudick, and she says to me, oh, I've heard of you, Mr. Novick. Um, can you tell me what your stand is on uh, fixing the roads? For example, do you think we should bond to fix the roads, or do you think we should raise taxes to fix the roads? And I have no idea what she's talking about. I have absolutely no idea what she's talking about, referencing whatsoever, and I didn't want to sound like an idiot, so I said to her, I said, well, uh, Mrs. Dudick, um, I know the way I feel about the issue, but I'm really out here today to listen to you. Was that great, huh? So she tells me everything I need to know. I'm writing down, and I'm sitting there, and I learned everything. And I went to the next door, and the next door, and the next door, and I'm learning. I said, wow, this is not bad. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to read the laws, I don't have to read the ordinances, I can just listen to people. Then one day, um, and I forgot to mention that Flemington was a town that no Democrat had won in about 22 years. So the Democratic Party did not tell me that. So I had no idea that I had no chance of winning whatsoever. But the, the Republicans actually sent out a campaign piece against me 
that said, it was attacking me and it said, and had a, a picture of me and it said, just say no-y to Joey. <laughs> Tell him to sit down. We don't need his stand-up act on counsel. And it went about talking about how all I wanted to do was uh, just tell jokes on council. I was just doing it to get attention. And I'm thinking, I can't believe that Rosie spoke with them that way. I can't believe they actually revealed my campaign plan. So I called up my dad, and my dad said to me, because I'd actually stopped campaigning for a little while. I was so upset about this. And my dad said, look, um, you know, you really shouldn't drop out. What you really should do is respond to that. And he said, you'll find some creative way to do it. So I went on the internet and I found a great quote from Will Rogers that said, um, I'm a comedian, when I tell a joke, it gets a laugh. He's a politician, when he tells a joke, it becomes a law. <laughs> so I sent that out as a press release. And I didn't have any money. Right? I sent that out as a press release, and next week in the local newspaper, there was an editorial that said, Mr. Reed, you owe Mr. Novick an apology. And it went about talking about how he was very rude to me, we don't do this in America, we don't attack people on the basis of what they do for a living, and I felt pretty good. And that got my juices going again, I started knocking on doors again, and I discovered that Bill Reed was an asshole to everybody. So. On election night, I was, you know, still didn't think that I was going to win. And at the end of the night, when they counted up all the votes, I had ended up beating him about 52% to 48%. So I actually kicked his ass, did very well, thank you. And the first person I called, of course, was my dad, who, like a good Jewish father, said to me, oh, that's great, I'm so proud of you. How much does that pay? And I told him it pays about $4,000 a year. And he said, oh, how much of that is off the books? <laughs> and I said, Dad, it's a government job. You can't get it off the books. He says, no, you should talk to the guy. See if you get part of it off the books. Maybe they can give some of it in cash to you. You know, you never listened to me. So that's how I got elected to the Flemington Borough Council. Thank you. Great, thank you. So we have some excellent storytellers. I want to bring up our first storyteller. Uh, David Lawson has um, performed his one-person shows across the country for over a decade. His story tonight is about politics and uh, family collisions. David? Hey, folks. Yeah, it is a hell of a thing when family and politics collide. I was in Indianapolis visiting some family of mine that had settled out there just a few weeks ago. And I was there with my mother and my father. I always love seeing my parents because every time I see my parents, they tell me some old family story that I had never, ever heard before. And we were at the Kurt Vonnegut Museum, which is a great time. And there they had this sword that Vonnegut stole during his World War II service, a swastika-branded Nazi sword. And this led my mother to say, oh, this reminds me of when my father's stepfather died and he gave my mom and dad all these things he had sold during his World War II service, these guns and helmets and knives and swords, all swastika-branded Nazi memorabilia. Now, folks, I grew up in Annandale, Virginia, right outside of Washington, D.C., in an observantly Jewish household. 
so I naturally said to my parents, like, well, you, you took those things. You destroyed them, right? My mother went, eh, not exactly. Uh, she goes on to explain that they posted an ad in the classifieds and sold them to some Nazi wingnut. And I was beside myself. I'm like, I can't believe you wanted to just, I can't believe you wouldn't have taken these hateful things and melted them down into nothing. My mother shot back very quickly. She said, you know, David, when you're newly married, have unstable employment and a small bank account, there's no time to be woke. In Indianapolis, I visited my grandmother, uh, my grandmother Sylvia Cohen. She is 104 years old. And she has every reason to be, as I just said, woke. She grew up dirt poor in Chicago, had to fight her way through the Depression. In fact, my grandma Sylvia, Sylvia Cohen, had to spend most of her adult life going by Sylvia Quinn because she was in Omaha, Nebraska in the 50s and 60s, and that wouldn't have gone over all right. Despite all these things, my grandmother is definitely not woke. Um, my grandmother loves our current president. Um, when I think as to why my grandmother loves our current president, I think of being a little kid and watching Judge Judy with her. And she always loved it when Judge Judy would yell something like, uh, don't pee on my leg and tell me it's raining. <laughs> and now, we have a president who says that every day. <laughs> uh, yeah, she absolutely uh, loves our president. And my mother's theory as to how my grandmother got so conservative later in her life is that my aunt and my uncle, who also live in Indianapolis, made her this way. Uh, my aunt and uncle are the founding members of this synagogue, Sherry Tefila, in Indianapolis, which is notable because the rabbi and almost the entire congregation is very vocally behind our current president. And I was supposed to see my aunt and my uncle a lot a few weeks ago, and I was there in Indianapolis, but I was riding in the car with my mother, and, and she got a phone call, and I just heard her say, uh, oh, my God, oh, that's terrible. Oh, Linda, I'm so sorry. Um, hey, let me know what I can do. We'll be over there as soon as we can. All right, bye. And I asked my mother what was going on. My mother explains to me that that synagogue, Sherry Tefila, just last night, had been vandalized, had been covered in spray paint, swastikas all over this synagogue. And my mother, she takes this type of thing very seriously. The Jewish Community Center in Northern Virginia that I grew, grew up going to got vandalized numerous times growing up. Uh, it just last, uh, last uh, Passover last year, a few months after our current president took office, it got vandalized for the first time in a while. She takes this very seriously. She tells me very somberly, but then about a minute later, I hear my mother go, <laughs> and uh, I was like, okay. Um, I, I asked my mother the same question you good folks might be asking yourself. So I was like, mom, why are you laughing? My mother goes on to explain that for one, we were just talking about all that Nazi memorabilia, and this is a crazy thing that just happened. And for two, she can't help but find it kind of funny that our current vice president made sure back uh, that there, you know, there's no hate crime legislation when he was the governor of Indiana. 
And they're, that, you know, they couldn't press hate crime charges. And for three, my mother couldn't help but laugh at the idea that this congregation stood behind a person who, as president, has made it so if you do things like spray paint swastikas on a synagogue, you are feeling very comfortable in the year 2018. And that was not the only recent time that politics and family collided for me. Last October, my sister Sarah was getting married. She's getting married to this guy, Elliot. Elliot works in the Department of Health and Human Services in Washington, D.C. Elliot works in transgender health. Elliot himself is a transgender man. And myself and my mom, dad, and sister were all incredibly anxious as to how this would go over with our Indiana Trump-loving family. Uh, thing is, though, is they showed up, and they smiled, and they cheered, and sometimes, not always, blood can be thicker than water. And that whole weekend, I had to be running all over Alexandria, Virginia, the city I was born in, right across the 14th Street Bridge from D.C. And that whole weekend, I kept passing the intersection of King Street and St. Patrick Street in Alexandria. And every time I passed that intersection, my blood ran cold because the building at that intersection is the headquarters of the National Policy Institute. Does anyone here know the National Policy Institute? I wish I was you folks then. The National Policy Institute is the think tank run by Richard Spencer, the man who coined the term alt-right, the man who believes that every single non-white, non-Christian, of which my very Jewish family applies, person in America should self-deport so the United States could be an all-white, all-Christian ethnostate. Hell of a guy. So I was passing that all weekend long and feeling really anxious about it, but not anxious enough to ruin the whole wedding. The Saturday of the wedding came, and my sister and Elliot, they, they signed the ketubah, and their vows were gorgeous, and, and they broke the glass like we Jews do. And a few hours later, everybody hits the dance floor. And let me tell you, the dance floor at my sister's wedding looked like a casting call for short-haired women wearing bow ties. One of my sister's bridesmaids, this woman, Rivka, who married her wife in one of the first legal same-sex marriages in the District of Columbia, said that including her own wedding, my sister's wedding was the queerest wedding she ever went to. Like a nice badge of honor hearing that. In fact, I actually loved hearing that because she got married at this house that used to be this mansion for this D.C. diplomat. Uh, and this D.C. diplomat, his name was Sumner Wells. And he actually got kicked out of the federal government in the 1940s when he was discovered that he was gay. And here we were having this big old queer party at his old stomping grounds. He probably would have loved it. And the last dance at my sister's wedding was Sinead O'Connor's Nothing Compares to You, just to make it just a little more queer. And in the last minute of that song, totally unrehearsed, unplanned, absolutely spontaneous, everybody at the wedding got together on the dance floor and got together in this huge group hug. And uh, it was me, it was my sister, my new brother-in-law, my girlfriend Paige right next to me, my mother, my father, all these short-haired women wearing bow ties arm in arm with all my red state relatives. And 
it's a rare thing to notice when you're living in a moment like that. But as immediately as that was happening, I was like, this is the greatest moment in the history of my family. Right here. This right here. And I have this obsession about how the present is going to be viewed in the future. It's something I think about a lot. And regardless of, of how this exact period in American history, regardless of how it ends, and, and even though I had to pass Richard Spencer's hateful headquarters that whole weekend, reminding me of the moment I was living in, and even though my sister and Elliot getting married is a, just a teeny tiny speck of dust in the grand scheme of things. I think the rest of my life, I'm going to look back on that weekend as a time where I felt like we were going to be okay. Thanks, folks. Thank you, David Lawson. So I also want to uh, say thank you to the uh, folks at uh, the Hopewell Theater. Isn't this a beautiful place, folks? Absolutely great. Uh, and make sure you check the website because they really have excellent shows here. They do spoken word now. They've got some great comedy coming up, one, mu wonderful music. And tomorrow night, I just discovered they actually are celebrating their one-year anniversary. So uh, I think that deserves an applause also. And storytelling is uh, actually the world's oldest profession, which is even older than the actual world's oldest profession. And uh, so we're going to give you an opportunity. Uh, tonight after the show, uh, we're trying something out tonight called Two Minute Tales. If you have a story that you'd like to tell that runs about two minutes, uh, there is a, a sign-up sheet. Rosie, could you put up the, um, there's a clipboard back there with a, a sign-up sheet. If anyone who would like to tell a story, and we're gonna, well, I think maybe we should just pass that around. If you would like to tell a story, please give me your name and maybe one or two words about the story. And at the end of our show, you can come up here and also tell a little bit of your story. So, okay? Because stories are wonderful. Right, anyway, our next storyteller is a very good friend of mine. She is a storyteller from Hoboken. Uh, she is an activist, she is a lawyer, uh, she is a, a professor. She is also gonna be telling a story about the first time she worked uh, in uh, the state of New Jersey in the most Jersey way possible. Please welcome Carla Katz. Hi, everybody. So, I need this little hand job. Do you mind? Ah. All right, I'm going to leave it. Can you hear me? Uh, so as Joey said, my name is Carla Katz. I'm from New Jersey. And everything that I know about the mob, I learned from my mother. My mom, uh, whose name is Angelina Josefina Scarlata Arlata, is Italian. And when I was a kid, she loved telling me stories about her family that came from the old country. She talked about her Cugina Carmen, who was now selling bananas in Queens, and her Aunt Mary, who used to be a nun and then scandalized the family by leaving the order. And when she talked about them, she would often use the word mafia. And so I was a kid, I asked her, well, what does that mean? And she said, it just means family. So fourth grade, show and tell, I bring in a picture of my family and I proceed to tell my entire class that my family and I are in the mafia. 
And Mrs. Campbell, my very mean fourth grade teacher, very quickly corrected my misunderstanding to the class. But honestly, after that, she treated me very nicely. Very nice. My family was working class, and uh, they were sort of Italian Jewish strict. And I love them, but from early on, I could not wait to escape. And I knew that escaping in Jersey meant you needed a car, uh, which meant you needed money, which meant I needed a job. So I started babysitting as soon as I turned 13, and money was rolling in. Uh, but my babysitting adventure ended pretty abruptly on the night that one of the fathers, while driving me home, very politely asked if he could have my panties. Yeah, for my dad, that was a hard stop on babysitting as a career. Um, so I lied about my age, and I got a job as a pizza counter girl at Salvatore's Italian Restaurant and Pizzeria in Burlington City. And Sal's was in one of those one-story concrete rectangular buildings off of Route 130, which is sort of a busy two-lane highway. And Sal's had one side of the building, and the XXX adult bookstore and film depot had the other side. And we shared the parking lot, so that gives you a good sense of the very high quality of our regular clientele. And inside, the restaurant was sort of strip mall Italian. It had those faux leather booths lining the perimeter, wooden tables, thin white tablecloths, this giant archway of fake brick and green plastic vines that was demarcating the restaurant side from the pizza side. And Sal had me start on the pizza side to sort of learn the business. And Sal himself was sort of a minor celebrity chef in Philly, um, but he loved having this place of his own, finally. And for me, things weren't always great at home. Um, so there was something comforting about being at Sal's. Some of it was the warmth of the ovens or the smell of the baking pizza and the yelling. It was probably mostly the yelling, because just like my mom, Sal was always yelling in Italian, stinada, stupido, facciamo in fretta. And like my dad, he was prone to these sort of sudden bursts of anger for little infractions, like if I forgot to fill the grated cheese shakers. But the angriest that he ever got was when I committed the apparently unpardonable sin of opening the door to the basement. And he had put a sign on there that just said, no touch. And he, he told me many times, he was pervato kabish. Um, I did not kabish. Uh, I fantasized about what was happening in that basement. And I fantasized even more after he had me go next door to the XXX adult bookstore for change one day. But I knew to keep my mouth shut, do my job, and eventually Sal trusted me enough to let me start waitressing on the restaurant side, which was a big deal to me because of the tips. So one day as I was opening, uh, someone, one of my regulars, knocked on the glass doors to see Sal. Come on, doll, I need to see him. So I let Mr. Scarlatta in, and everything about Mr. Scarlatta creeped me out. His head was always, his bald head was always sweaty, and he smelled like cigars and disinfectant. 
And he was always in this ill-fitting black suit with this tiny tie that barely made it halfway down his big belly. And the fact that he always ordered Muscles Pasilipo did nothing for his overall aroma. Come on, doll. Well, unfortunately for me, Sal was in the forbidden basement. So I was scared, but I knocked gently on the door. Sal, Mr. Scarlatta's here. Sal, no answer. And I could see Mr. Scarlatta getting impatient. And I didn't know why he was a big shot, but I could tell by the obsequious way that Sal always spoke to him that he must be. So I had sweat dripping down the back of my neck and I gently opened the basement door and I just put my mouth right to the crack and said, Sal! And he flew up the Sorry about that. I wet your stage, sorry there. He flew up the stairs and he swatted the door open and closed in one motion. And in the few seconds that the door was open, I saw this deluge of red. There was red flocked wallpaper and red carpet and red lights and Sal's red face. And he gave me an evil, I'll deal with you later look. And he greeted Mr. Scarlatta warmly in Italian and I stood there thinking, my mind was racing. I'd expected to see buckets and dirty mops, not this like weird Rococo scene. But I tried to just put it out of my mind. I, I didn't want to be fired. I really needed the money. And so a few weeks later, Mr. Scarlatta came in with a few of his colleagues in equally bad suits, and they took their corner booth in the back. Four orders of mussels, doll, extra bread. And when they left and I cleared his table, I realized that Mr. Scarlatta forgot his keys. So I ran out after him into the parking lot and yelled, Mr. Scarlatta, you forgot your keys. But he was already in the passenger seat of another car pulling out onto Route 130. And he yelled out, no doll, that's for you. And he stuck his arm out the window and he waved it towards the front of the restaurant where there was a shiny new black Cadillac. And I should have been absolutely thrilled, but I was petrified. I ran inside and I gave Sal the keys like they had a, had a curse. And he came outside, he was confused, he came outside, he tried them and they started the caddy. And when he got out of the car, he walked over to me very slowly. And then he put both of his hands on both of my shoulders and he said, you gotta take it a car. You gotta take it a car. And I said, no, 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 no. Well, first of all, he didn't know this, but I was not nearly old enough to drive. And second of all, I had just seen The Godfather, so I knew, I was young, but I knew that a Cadillac was a slightly inappropriate tip. But Sal said, you need to offer Mr. Scarlatta respect. You gotta take it a car. So I did the only thing I could do. I quit. And I never went back. I was petrified. I spent months thinking that Mr. Scarlatta was hunting me down because I had disrespected him. I jumped when there was a loud noise. I checked my bed for horse heads. <laughs> I didn't tell my parents about this because I thought they would be safer if they didn't know. 
And eventually, as time passed and I wasn't dead, I started to calm down. Um, I got another job. I went to work at the Golden Dawn Diner. I figured I'd go all in with the Greeks, forget about the Italians. <laughs> and eventually, I saved up enough money for my own car. And I, when I turned 17, I got a 1976 Buick Skylark in glacier blue. It was my liberation, my getaway car. And I never found out what happened to that black Cadillac. But when I got the Skylark, I drove past Sal's and saw that it was boarded up. And then I looked in the, the school library and did a little research and found out that it had been raided for illegal gambling. So I guess somebody finally got a look in that basement. Thank you. Carla Katz, thank you. So uh, some of you um, may have been told stories in your life from a grandfather, your father, your mom, your dad. Uh, for me, it was my dad. Both my mom and dad told uh, really great stories. That's how I became a storyteller. And in uh, her later years, my mom moved to Florida, and we uh, tried to get my mom to... Um, uh, be on the internet, and we actually were able to teach my 87-year-old mom how to use email, which was a journey in and of itself. So I said to her, I said, Mom, when you email someone, if you email me, I will get the email immediately. So my mom would email me, then call me to see if I got the email. <laughs> Did you get the email? No, Mom, just tell me what you want. No, no, check the email. No, no, Mom, I'm on the phone with you now. What do you want? Check the email. So I'd hang up the phone, I'd go on my laptop, and the email would say, call more often. <laughs> it's my mom's way of uh, just telling me. And my mom, I was down in Florida. Again, true story, we were um, uh, looking at my mom's email, and I said, Mom, you're emailing Aunt Bella in California. I don't think she's going to get the email because you're not using the little at symbol. And she said, no, 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 she got the email. She responded. And I said, that's just not possible. So I looked at the chain, and my mom would write to her, hello, how are you? And it would bounce back, hello, how are you? <laughs> I'm fine, I'm fine. So two Jewish women talking to each other across the country, and they're okay on how they're doing. So, uh, all right. So uh, I want to bring up our next storyteller. Uh, she has been on the uh, Risk podcast. She's done the show Mortified and many other storytelling shows in New York. She has her own show that she hosts called Mostly True Things, and she's going to be telling a story about how when she discovered her father's past, it gave her direction for her own life. And Jude Trader Wolf. Hi, everybody. <clears throat> so the summer before my senior year in high school, my friends are choosing their majors and deciding what college they're going to. And another friend is planning her wedding. And I have no vision whatsoever of what happens to me or who I am after graduation. 
and my parents aren't giving me any direction either because they have one career path in mind for me. Uh, I come from a very, very traditional family, educated according to the three R's, really, really religious, lots of rules, lots of rosaries, and they want me to be a nun, and they have all, they've always wanted me to be a nun. And when I was younger, I thought maybe I wanted to be a nun too, and they would say, look, you're always worried about what to wear and how you look. You're a nun, it's the same outfit every single day. You never have to worry about it. They, they knew that I wanted to travel. You'll be a missionary. You can go all over the world. And um, I would say, why does God let people suffer so, Mom and Dad? We pray day and night. We're always praying. Why did God let Mrs. Hunter die of cancer? And my dad would say, if you become a nun, you'll be a bride of Christ, and Jesus will explain it to you. <laughs> and that sounded great, you know, but I wanted to be a nun like Maria in The Sound of Music, uh, who, you know, and, and all the nuns that I knew in Catholic school, we're not like the nuns in The Sound of Music. If you ever went to Catholic school, the nuns I knew were, you know, screamy, slappy, crazy, freaky. They were like the seven demented brides of Christ. <laughs> and when I was about 13, I decided I still wanted to do some kind of missionary thing in the world, but I also wanted sex and shopping. Well, that's the last we ever talked about a career for me or what to do with my life. And that's not the only thing that we can't talk about. My parents believe that Martin Luther King and the uh, civil rights movement is a communist plot. They believe the moon landing is a hoax and that all the social changes of the 60s represent the dawning of the age of apocalypse. Now, I think that Martin Luther King is a modern day Jesus, that technology is probably our best hope for humanity, and that the social changes of the 60s are the dawning of the age of Aquarius. So there are just huge areas of life and conversation that we cannot address. We just have to avoid them all the time. And as I'm getting closer to adulthood and they're getting older, their world is getting more suffocating, they're closing in more black and white, and we can't really discuss anything because it starts with a debate and ends with me getting grounded. So I decide, maybe I don't know who I'm gonna be after graduation, but I know that right now I am going to sing songs like Both Sides Now and Teach Your Children, and I'm gonna sing those songs in our living room playing my dad's guitar. Now my dad's guitar is a sacred item in our family when he plays and sings, which he does very, very well, it's a show that it, of, of, he sings these cowboy songs about loneliness and loss, and, and he's, he's expansive and emotional and passionate, and there's a side to him that we never otherwise see. And we kind of get a glimpse of who he was before he was this mechanic, family farmer, very driven guy, always working, supporting a wife and eight kids. And he never talks about himself, but when he sings a song, he might give a, he might give a hint of where that song came from and that um, I found out that he had a brother who died when he was 13 when he told us this song about a dying cowboy and how, why he sings it, and that he quit eighth grade and got a job working on the roads, um, uh, building roads in Illinois and Wisconsin all over the place, just start, started working at 13 with all these men. And 
I never knew these things except when he would tell stories and play the guitar. So I guess it's a way to try to connect with him because it's the one time when we're listening to him play and sing the same songs in the exact same way every time and we cry in the exact same spots every time. We love it so much and we're all connected during those times. So I'm sitting in the living room with my dad's guitar and it's, it's a thin um, body, it has a very narrow neck, the strings are just super hard and dusty and rigid and they really hurt my fingers. Uh, to, they have to press very, very hard to make a chord sound and I've got the chord chart in front of me and I'm really pressing hard on these strings and it's, it's, my fingers are almost bleeding and I get the G chord to play, great. And then I go to play the next chord and the whole thing goes out of tune again. And I, I, I just can't get any flow between chords and music moves. You have to make the transitions quickly. And I can't seem to do it and I'm getting increasingly frustrated. I'm already floundering in everything in life. I'm failing in geometry. I can't go to college. I want to do this one thing and, it, and I just can't get it. And then I feel this, the gaze of my dad walking into the living room staring at me. And he says, I don't know what you think you're doing. And I think, are we talking about the guitar right now? Or are we talking about the fact that I stole a pack of camels from the, your carton in the shed? <laughs> or my sister and I took out the car without permission? I, I really don't know. I can never tell. He's very cryptic. And, uh, and I say, uh, I'm just trying to play a G major chord. It's the, there's the chart. You know, I'm just trying to play that chord like you, know, like you do. And he says, well, you're never going to get it doing it that way. And my usual self-consciousness now just rises to an, a, a fever pitch. And I, I, now I'm never going to get it. And I'm sort of shaking and feeling so uncomfortable. And I, I'm trying again. And I get the chord in my hand. And it plays right. But I can't make the transition to any chord. It goes all out of tune again. And then he says, oh, oh, let me show you. And he takes the guitar and he plays it perfectly chord changes, flowing, nice transitions, and that makes me feel so uncomfortable and angry, and I say, well, look at this, it's so easy for you. You just pick up the guitar and just play it, it's so easy for you. You have everything exactly the way you want it. You always win every argument, and you always get your way. You get everything the way you want it. And you know those nuclear silos? Up, you know where the, they go that open like this, and then the and then the, the the nuclear warhead comes out. It's it's like the he stands up, and this top of his head opens up, and this rage bubble comes out of him, and he says, "You think this is what I wanted to work on a farm and be a mechanic and have these hands?" that are bloated from all the chemicals I've been working with in the auto industry for all my life. I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be an engineer. I don't have what I wanted, and you're going to do something with your life because you've got a chance. And I know right now we're not talking about the guitar anymore. This is definitely not the guitar. And then the nuclear silo closes, he sits down, the mask comes back of his facade, and he hands me the guitar, and he says, 
You can keep trying, but maybe you should just get one of your own. And inside I feel, what, I'm not good enough to play your guitar? Because we, that's the one thing I'm trying to connect with you about, and I'm not good enough to play your guitar? Well, I floundered for three years after graduation, just as I imagined I would. And during those three years, my dad did get sicker and sicker from the chemicals that he had used all his professional life as a mechanic. And I eventually, after three years, discovered that there's actually a career where you can use music to get to know more about people and to draw people out. I found there's a career track called music therapy. And, and I was at that point breaking out of that suffocating little world and visiting my dad in the hospital a lot and I knew that he wasn't gonna live too many years longer. So I took his guitar to my guitar store because now I had my own instrument and I said, I'd like to get my dad's guitar repaired and restrung for him and to cheer him up. And the guy looks at this guitar and he says, if I take the strings off this guitar, the whole thing falls apart. This cannot be repaired. And I was like, what are, you, what are you talking about? It's in one piece. And he says, no, look at this. He says, uh, the, uh, the part between the neck and the body, the glue is coming off. The bridge over here is lifting. The glue is coming off. These strings are, are the only thing holding this thing together. And I said, but when my dad plays it, it sounds fine. And he said, well, because maybe he so knows that instrument, he knows exactly how to adjust himself in order to play it and make it sound okay, but this can't be repaired. And again, this guitar tells me a story about my dad. Because I guess, I guess, Life was just always really hard for him, and he was used to having to adjust, and he didn't think about it. He just did it. And he didn't talk about it. But I know he wanted something more for us. And the thing is, when you can't share anything about your inner life, Music talks. This old guitar is tired and worn. The joints are disconnected. The body's bent, the surface torn. The frets and pegs neglected. The strings are firm and tightly wound. They catch you in suspension. Their pressured feel, their steely sound. They cut you with their tension. A buried dream, like a cry, goes out 
in a song that could shake the rafter when the music plays it can light the way for those who follow after this old guitar its edges rough the fingerboard is frayed the wood is warped the tone is tough the bridge has pulled away its marbled picks its dusty case the miles it's traveled show the echoes of its steady base down long and lonely roads a buried dream like a cry goes out in a song that can shake the rafter when the music plays it can light the way for those who follow after a buried dream like a cry goes out in a song that can shake the rafter when the music plays it can light the way for those who follow after Thank you. Boy, don't you love a good story? <laughs> so, um, 1964, I was in fourth grade, and Miss Connor, it's my fourth grade teacher, wanted us to find out what our uh, dads did in the war. Uh, my dad uh, was uh, private first class, Bernie Novick, and he had always told a lot of stories about uh, being in the war, being in the army, being in Europe and Africa and uh, Italy. And, uh, but I never got the opportunity to actually handle asking him questions in such an academic way. So Ms. Connor handed out to the uh, class uh, 10 questions we had to ask her dad, and a couple of days later, we we're gonna be doing an oral report. And if you remember those um, sheets with the, uh, you know, there weren't Xerox, there were the Mimeo uh, paper with that great smell. That was the uh, first time I think I got stoned when I was eight years old, smelling the paper. 
Questions like, what did your dad do in World War II? What was his job? Where was he stationed? And uh, I sat down with my dad, and I was asking these questions, and he said, oh, I had a very important job in the war. Uh, it was my job. Uh, every week, I would meet with uh, FDR and Winston Churchill and Charles de Gaulle and Stalin and, um, and all the generals, General Patton, General Eisenhower, and uh, they would give me uh, some of their reports, and I would decide where we were attacking, and uh, that was my job. And I said, wow, this is great. I'm writing all this down, and I'm thinking, boy, this is great. I'm, uh, I'm going to kill with this material. This is, I didn't know my dad was that important. And I'm thinking, private first class, wow, that's what a great uh, job. So we go to school the next day, and the oral reports are due, and uh, Chris uh, Link, my friend Chris Link, is uh, telling a really boring story uh, about how his dad was in the Army Corps of Engineers, and he was in Texas, and he uh, fixed beaches, and I'm thinking, boy, that sucks. That is, you know, my story is just going to kill, you know. So I get up uh, in front of class, and I'm reading my oral report, and I said, my dad was uh, private first class Bernie Novick, and he used to meet with uh, Franklin Roosevelt and General Patton and General Eisenhower and Charles de Gaulle, and every week he would decide where they were going to attack, and that was my dad's job. He was a very important man. He would meet with everybody. They would call him, and he would give them orders. That was his job. So Miss Connor says, uh, uh, enough to forget the words, uh, uh, she said to me, Joseph, sit down which I discovered is not a good thing to hear from your uh, fourth grade teacher. At the end of the class, and I'm thinking, well, I did so well, she cut me off. You know what I'm saying? I, and so at the end of that day, she hands me an envelope with my mom's name on it, which I also discovered when you're in the fourth grade is not a good thing to have happen. So um, later that night, I'm holding the envelope. I don't want to give it to my mom yet. We have dinner. I do my homework. About five minutes before I'm supposed to go to bed, I hand my mom the envelope thinking, oh, I forgot to give it to you. She, she opens up the envelope and she yells to my dad upstairs. She says, Bernie, get down here! And she says to him, you have to explain what's going on. You have to set him straight. And uh, uh, the teacher says in the note that you couldn't have possibly been a private first class and doing all of that uh, you know, work. You couldn't do that. And my dad sits me down. He says, oh, well, let me straighten it out for you. Uh, that was my job. I would meet with uh, Stalin and, uh, and uh, FDR and Charles de Gaulle and, and Winston Churchill. And what we would do is uh, uh, we would meet privately. That was how I got private. I'm thinking, well, that makes sense. I'm writing that down. And I said, well, uh, what about the other part, first class? It says, oh, well, these were very important world leaders. We met in only the you know, best first class hotels. <laughs> so that's how I got my name as a private first class. Very important job. And he said to me, you go tomorrow and set that teacher straight because I'm Bernie Novick and I'm the guy who won World War II. It's <laughs> my dad. Thank you. So. <laughs> I want to bring up our next storyteller now, a wonderfully funny woman. Uh, she is a seven-time moth champion. If you've ever been to New York City and you've seen the moth shows, they're the uh, best in New York. She's won that seven times. Uh, she's also a former talent agent, and uh, she's going to be telling a story about how family vacations attempted to make her a little bit less neurotic. Sandy Marks. Gosh, everyone's been so super classy and poignant, and I'm like garbage. So uh, sorry, I'm bringing down all the uh, the culture. 
Um, okay, so if you look at me, you would probably notice that I'm not like an outdoorsy type of person. Like I'm not someone who's going to audition to be on Survivor or Naked and Afraid or any of those shows. I am afraid of any animal that's not on a leash. I am so neurotic about everything, and I blame my mother for all of this because I was raised in Queens, a Jewish, very overbearing Jewish family, and my mother had told me things that she swore were true, and I couldn't Google them back then, obviously, and I was way too lazy to ever go to the library and look it up on microfiche or whatever we did, so I had to believe her. For instance, she told me, don't ever let a bird pass over your head because if it poops on your scalp, you will die. The toxins will go straight to your brain. So I was the kid at sleepaway camp, like, like this, weaving, and, because I always thought I was going to die when a bird passed overhead. I had very few friends because I was always like serpentining. So that was number one. Number two, never let a dog come close. Okay, so we lived in an apartment building. There was maybe like one dog on the elevator. It was Mrs. Haas's dog, and it was a standard French poodle. And it was, it was really very attractive. And she always had on like bows, and Mrs. Haas would paint her toenails red. She kind of looked like a whorish, like Miss Kitty from Gunsmoke Dog. She was, she was very odd looking. But my mother would say, get back, because if you get bitten, you will need rabies shots. And they are going to be in your stomach. And there are like nine of them. Now, when you're like eight or nine years old and you hear this information, you have this image, like a cartoon hypodermic needle. And So I was always very skittish around dogs. So now I've got the birds to deal with. And then there's dogs. And then you're not allowed to swim after you have like a tuna sandwich because you're going to drop like a stone. So I wasn't like really into swimming. So I was, I was like the only eight-year-old at sleepaway camp who claimed she had her period like the entire summer because I was afraid I was going to drown. So I was a hot mess. And I didn't want my kids, I have three kids, I didn't want my kids to be like me because I thought at the very least, I'm not that greatest mother. I work full time. I hated my husband at the time. I was very preoccupied. I was just barely getting by. Like, this is no joke. I once left my son when he was a baby, like those little kangarakaroos. I left him on a picnic table and I drove away. I forgot him. My daughters had to tell me as we pulled up to our house, you left Ryan in the playground. So, yeah, I got back there. He had like a sunburn on his forehead. So I wasn't really doing a great job. Thank God nobody, like the authorities never like said, you're a horrible mother, I'm taking away your children. And for me, a good day, the bar was so low, was no visits to an emergency room. So my kids were doing pretty well, I figured. Everything was fine. Okay, but now I want to like step up my game. I want them to have experiences so they're not like their mother. So I decide we're going to have a trip that's gonna have like a lot of activities. We're gonna have an adventure. So I go online and I start looking like, what's a good adventure? What would my kids learn something from? And I'm looking at pictures and I'm taken with this beautiful family and they are white water rafting. And I'm thinking, this is good. These people are so beautiful that maybe if I book this trip, we will look like these people, like the, the mother, she has those arms, you know, like, um, they're, they're like definition, and she has hair that's shiny, and she has a ponytail, and her husband's wearing like a Ralph Lauren, like polo shirt, and their kids, very attractive. So I'm thinking, okay, if they're, they're in the picture, looks good, we're gonna, okay, I, 
say to my, my husband's so nice. This is my second husband, not the one that I really hated when I was first married. My second husband's so nice. I say, whitewater rafting. He says, fine. He says, he says yes to anything. So I think, okay, great. Now my kids are young still at this point, so they're too dumb to say, mom, that might be dangerous. So we don't do much research. We just get the packing list. We figure out what we need. We get organized. I'm really excited. This is going to be fantastic. We're going to have an adventure. We're going to raft. I don't know even know what that really means, but I figure we'll be in a boat. There'll be, you know, oars, paddles, like, you know, what, what could happen? Okay, so we get down there, and <laughs> we meet our guide. His name is Chuck, I think. It's like one of those one-syllable names that you're kind of suspicious that he didn't start out as a Chuck. He didn't look like a Charles, but his name was, and he's very nice, and he starts giving us instructions, and he gives us all our very bright orange life jackets, and he tells us, you know, you got to use the oars, and this is where you sit, and I'm thinking, oh great, life jackets, like it's really going to matter, like we'll see our bloated corpses floating down some river, and the orange is the only thing that they will see. Okay, but I keep my mouth shut, I'm trying to be a good mother, don't want to be too neurotic, but then I see that there's another family that's going to get on the boat with us. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, I, really? I thought we'd do this by ourselves. He said, oh, no, 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 there's enough for every. Okay, now I'm eyeing these people, and I'm already worried because the water is frothy, even though I still don't know what it means. There's this boat, there are oars, and I'm like, I don't know, do you guys ever do that thing when you're in an elevator and you look around at the, uh, the, like the capacity for weight and you start adding in your head, what does everybody weigh? Now, I don't eat a lot, so I know I don't take up much room. My children, they were little. My husband, not. But these, this dude, this other dad, he was huge. He looked like, like the front of a tractor, like a double-wide tractor. And his wife, big, and his kids, they're all big. And I'm, I'm thinking, this is problematic, but I don't say anything. I'm trying to be a good mother. All right, so we all load into the boat. And I'm already starting to feel like this was probably a bad idea because this is the thing I didn't research. Now, I don't know if you guys ever went rafting, but they grade the water. This was class four. Yes! Yes! I can't even swim. I don't. Okay, that's like, you know, Homeland Security bright orange. And we're in and we're in this boat with these other people. Okay. So it's too late. I mean, we're in, we're on, we're going. You know, he pushes off and we're not a hundred feet away from the shore when that dude, that big other dude, does a header right out of the boat. And now I'm like, I'm apoplectic. And I'm thinking, what's going to happen next? Now, he is crying and screaming, and he is a German tourist. And if you want to know how I know this, it's because he's crying and begging for us to save him in German. And he's like holding onto this like slimy rock. Okay, now I'm going to say something now that's really awful, but you're not going to tell anybody out this, outside of this room, right? It's between us. Okay, keep it here. When I'm looking at that dude sitting there crying in German and yelling, I'm not like that upset. I'm sorry, I wasn't. I'm a Jew. My ancestors had to give up like their shoes and their suitcases. I, I mean, we probably have artwork that was stolen somewhere. I don't know. But I'm not that upset that I'm thinking like, yeah, fuck you. Fuck you, German tourist. Your grandfather probably tried to rape my grandmother. I'm not that upset about you being on that rock. But I kept it to myself because I'm a mother. I'm thinking it, but I don't say it. Okay, so Chuck, 
he's a good dude. He circles around. He somehow fishes this guy out of the water. And now the guy's like all blustery. He has a cut on his forehead. And I'm like, a cut on his forehead. That's the least you should have. So he's back in the boat. His wife is you know, yelling in German something. OK, now at this point, I'm done. I want off. Because this, I could tell this is going to be catastrophe. This big guy, if he had this much trouble, what's going to happen to us? So I start negotiating, because that was my want, being a talent agent. And I start saying to Chuck, Chuck, can you let me off? Can you just pull over? No. I said, didn't, I don't care about my family. Just me. Just me. Take them. Take them. They can go. But can you just pull off and let me out? And he said, no, you, you got to stay. And then he bribes me because he says, if you stay on the boat, when we get off, <clears throat> I'm going to give you sugar cookies and a Capri Sun. And I guess I'm a cheap date, because when I heard Capri Sun, I said, OK, fine. So we stay on that boat. And my kids were so happy. They're too stupid. They didn't know that it was so dangerous. I'm crying the whole time. I'm like saying prayers, and I'm not a religious person, but I am making up prayers just because I'm thinking maybe God will hear me. Maybe I won't die in this boat, which obviously I haven't. Okay, so finally, he pulls us up to shore. The German tourist, he's not happy, but I don't give a shit about him. I just care about my family. So we disembark and I crawl onto like the muddy ground. It's like I just got off the Titanic. I was like the last rescued survivor. And I'm thinking, we will never do anything this exciting again. And my kids are so happy. They spend the next three days talking about this wonderful adventure. I kept my mouth shut. OK, so time passes. A Couple years go by. And I'm thinking, all right, don't be so sassy. Don't do that again. Lower the bar of expectations for your family, even though they seem to be doing fine without me. So I say, OK, let's spend four days doing a, a nice, fun adventure, but something more low key. So I decide, let's go to the Mohonk Mountain Resort. Have you guys ever been there? Oh my god. OK. First of all, it's gorgeous. It's old, this big, beautiful, turreted building. I think it's in Poughkeepsie, with a covered porch and rocking chairs. And they have a pond and rock scrambling and horseback riding. I mean, it's really adorable. It's gorgeous. And I think, fine, this is perfect can't get in trouble there. So everyone's on board. We all go. It's a summer weekend. We're all excited. And as promised, my kids went rock scrambling. I took photographs. They went rowing. I sat in a rocking chair. Everybody was happy. We're having a great time. We even went every night to this dining room. OK, now, the, if you guys have been there, you know there's like one big communal dining room. And the place is so old, the carpet has not been vacuumed since like Woodrow Wilson stayed there. They have, the dining room smelled like Bengay and egg salad. Like everything is, it's so old. And they have photographs of all the guests that have ever stayed there on all the walls. But it's not like, like you know you go to the dry cleaners and you see like Morgan Fairchild or somebody like hanging on the, like Rosie O'Donnell ate in your Chinese restaurant. No, no, it's like Lizzie Borden is on the walls. They, they're all like sepia tone pictures. And there's this one woman, she looks like in the ring, you know, the girl who falls in the well. You know, and like you think the eyes are like traveling. It's freaky, but I don't say anything. I'm trying to be a good mother. So, all right, so we do all the activities. And then, oh, one more thing. My kid, I have identical twin daughters, okay? And at the time, they were like 12. And the second night, I said, meet us in the hall we'll go down and have dinner together. So my daughters are standing like a Diane Arbus painting, um, photograph, in the hall, two of them. 
And I, I swear it was like you could hear Jack Nicholson typing, like in another room. Because it looks like we're, I think they might have even shot some sequences from The Shining in this place. It's unbelievable. So I'm already on edge. So the last day, Keith says, good news. I signed us up. We're all going horseback riding. And I'm thinking, oh, shit. 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 My only experience I've ever had with a horse was I dated a guy who was a horse trainer. And he used to take me to the stables to watch him like groom his horse. Have you guys ever seen a male horse pee up close? It's not good. <clears throat> you go there and you see that and you think you're going to be sacrificed or something. It's so frightening that whenever I see a horse, I think of how they're powerful, big animals. I'm afraid of horses. So I say, okay, because what am I going to do? I don't want my kids to realize what a mess I am. So we all go down there. It's like a little dude ranch area. So we get down there, and the guy says, uh, here's your horse, your horse. And I do that thing that's so stupid. I say, can you bring me the horse that's on the way to the glue factory, right? Dumb joke. And he's looking at me like, yeah, sure, whatever. Like, mm -hmm, what, fine. So he brings out my horse, this beautiful girl. You know, the flies are circling her head. Everyone, my kids, they're still stupid at this age. They jump up. They have no problems. They're jumping up on their horses. My husband, he's up on his horse. They're waiting for me. And I am frozen in my steps. I cannot move. I am freaking out. And I said, <laughs> he says, it's fine. He's fine. I'll bring you a step stool. So he brings me like a kitchen stool. And my kids are laughing at me like, mom, get over yourself. Just get up on the goddamn horse. And I'm so scared. I just don't want to do it. And my husband keeps saying, it's fine. Get on the horse or just go. It's not a problem. Okay, now this is a small piece of information that's very important to this story. I am not my husband's first wife. I'm not even his second wife. I'm his third wife. And you might want to ask, well, what happened to him? Now, the second one's still alive, but not the first one. And then you might wonder, she died? Well, how did his first wife die? She fell off a horse. I am married to a man who was married to a woman who fell off a horse and died. And he's now telling me, come on, get up on the horse. Now, I, don't, I know he doesn't want to kill me, certainly not in front of my three children. Maybe he did with they weren't there. But I'm thinking, OK, it can't be that bad. He's not going to do that to me. And if he has gotten over the fact that he lost a wife to a horse and he wants me on one, it's probably OK. So I start to climb up the step stool. And when I get on the second step, this sweet, beautiful old girl swoons, goes like this, and she faints. My horse collapses right in front of us. She's lying there. And I'm thinking, what? And they're all la like they're laughing. It's like nervous laughter. Now, I know she wasn't dead because her eyes were open and there were flies circling everywhere. And I'm looking at her and I'm thinking, what the hell just happened? And then she looks at me like she knows me. She knows me. And she goes like this. Hmm. <laughs> like she was thinking, I got you, girl. I got you. You don't want to be on me. I don't want you on me. We're fine. And I'm thinking, oh my god, I'm in love with this, this almost dead horse. This is the most amazing thing that's ever happened. So I waved my family off. I took photographs of them. That sweet old horse got back up on her sea legs. And all I could think about was my mom, my sweet mom, who's been gone for a very long time. Maybe miracles happen. Maybe she was reincarnated. And maybe she was that horse. And maybe she was saying to me, 
Girl, I told you, don't get on a horse. What are you doing? She's still taking care of me somehow. And everything worked out. My kids are all adults now. My son goes hunting for wild pigs in Georgia. I don't know why. I can't imagine any Jewish boy hunting for wild pigs. In, but I raised him well because he has no fear. <clears throat> My daughters, they seem to be the same. One had a ski accident, wound up getting her knee replaced. They all are no worse for the wear. Me, never broken a bone, still nervous about everything, but I think my mother's watching to make sure nothing bad happens. Thank you. Sandy Marks, thank you. Uh, so for those of you who are, uh, is the um, a clipboard with, uh, if you would like to tell a story going around? Oh, could you, could you pass that around a little bit? Can somebody uh, make sure that gets passed around people if they would like to tell a story? That would be great, thank you. Can somebody do that? Great, thank you. Excellent. So, um, I want to bring up our next storyteller. A, um, he is a storyteller and a songwriter and a singer, and he tells uh, stories and sings songs that touch the heart and touch the funny bone. And uh, he will be telling a story, uh, it was an altercation, and it was a uh, coming-of-age story about disillusionment. Ken Gallipo. When I was in sixth grade, it was my turn to become an altar boy. It was my turn to be part of the mystery of the Catholic Church. My part, my turn to be part of the ritual dance of the Mass at church. It was my turn to play with fire. Well, with the burning of the incense building structures out of matches and burning them in the sacristy and taking the apparatus for lighting candles and making smoke rings, carbon rings in the ceiling of the sacristy, it's really amazing that we never burn the place down. Well, I was raised in Westfield, New Jersey, and I belonged to a church was Holy Trinity. And Holy Trinity Church was founded by a Monsignor Watterson. And by the time I went to school there, he was 90 years old. Now, Monsignor Watterson, he founded this church. And now that he was 90 years old, they said that because he was the founder, when he died, they would bury them, him there on the grounds of the church. The truth was, he was already buried there. So, Monsignor Watterson to us kids, was the embodiment of God on this earth. Now, he was old. He was 90 years old. And there was another priest who actually ran the parish because he was so old to run the parish. This is a priest who used to walk around in high school at the high school dances with a six-inch ruler to make sure that the boys and girls were the proper distance apart. 
but he's another story for another time. But Monsignor Watterson, he was the embodiment of God, and we feared Monsignor Watterson like no one else. Monsignor Watterson never spoke. Monsignor Watterson, you never spoke to him, but he was always there. You would see him walking around, and he would be looking at you, and you know that he was watching you, waiting to condemn you for what you did and damn you to hell forever. So in order to have that privilege to play with fire, you had to learn the ways of the altar boy. And that was to go in the, be there in the mass and say the prayers with the priest and respond in Latin. We had no idea what we were saying, but we had to say the Latin prayers. We had to learn where to go in the, in the sanctuary to carry the water and the wine and the towel so the priest could wash his hands and pour the wine into the chalice. We had to learn how to take the platen and give people the, the hold the platen underneath their, their mouth while they were taking communion. But that was the job. And I had learned all these things that I needed to learn, and it was my turn to finally go say Mass or be a part of the Mass and serve. But the very first time I was to go, we had a big snowstorm. And in the snowstorm, I happened to, fortunately or unfortunately, live only a, a half a mile away. So I had to get up at 5 in the morning so that I could be there for 6 o'clock mass. Because the 6th graders would serve the 6 o'clock mass, the 7th graders would serve the 7 o'clock mass, and the 8th graders would serve the 8 o'clock mass that was always said by Monsignor Watterson. So you had to be old enough to know how to deal with Monsignor Watterson, which is to do exactly what you were supposed to. So the day came, and I walked through the snow, and I got there to the church. I walked inside the sacristy, and I started getting ready. I put on my cassock, and the priest came in, and he said, is there anyone else here? And I said, no, it's just me. And he said, okay, no problem. And we looked outside, and he said, there's nobody here, but we're going to go out and say the Mass. So I was a little nervous. This is my first time. They had only kind of glossed over what you do if you're by yourself. But I kind of remember this stuff, and I went out with a priest, and I said the prayers, and I tried not to fall asleep when it came time to ring the bells during the consecration. And I got through the whole Mass, and I was thought, wow, that was really good. And the priest, afterwards, when we got in the sacristy, he said, okay, thank you very much. And he left, and I went to the other side. And that's when I started to play with the easy light charcoal that they now had. You could take a match and you'd put it on the charcoal, and it was kind of like a wildfire would run right over the charcoal as it, as it lit the entire thing. So I was playing with a bunch of those, but then it was getting time, and I thought, well, I should go to school when the next priest came in to tell the 7 o'clock mass. And when he walked in, he looked at me and he said, um, so are you the altar boy? And I said, well, um, there's nobody else here, but because of the snow, if you need somebody, I'll be happy to serve mass for you. And he said, oh, thank you very much. 
So he went on the other side and he got dressed and I came out and I went out again and now we went out for the mass and I said all the prayers and I poured the water and the wine and held a towel and I thought, wow, this is really great. And I thought, I was really proud of myself. I'm doing all this. I'm doing it by myself. And when the mass was over, we went back inside and the priest thanked me and he left. And then I went back to the sacristy for the, where the altar boys would stay. And I thought, all right, I need to get out of here now. Monsignor Watterson's coming in. I don't want to be here. So I got my stuff together, and I was going out the door when in walks this other boy. He was the next altar boy. And he walked in, and as he walked in, he looked at me, and he said, oh, am I serving with you today? And I said, no, no, no. I was here for the 6 and 7 o'clock mass, and I haven't seen anybody else. And he said, well, you can't leave until the next altar boy comes. And I said, why? And he said, oh, I got to serve for Monsignor Watterson, and there's got to be two altar boys there, because if there isn't, he'll have my head. And I said, well, what's the big deal? I said, you know, I just served two masses all by myself. He said, no, 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 no. You need to stay here, and you need to serve with me. He was an eighth grader. I was a sixth grader. I had to do what he said. So I put my stuff down, I put the cassock on, we walked into the other room, Monsignor Watterson was standing there. He didn't say a word, the other Walter boy motioned to where I should stand, and we walked out into the sanctuary. So all that confidence I had gained after doing those two masses just totally went away. And it's like I couldn't remember. Oh, you know, what am I supposed to do and say? Am I going to do the right thing? Am I going to do? But I went out and I knelt down and I said the Latin. I repeated the Latin. We got up and it was time to go do the water and the wine. And we walked all the way to the back of the sanctuary. Because at that time, they were, the mass was where they were facing this way towards the cross and not the people. And the sanctuary was very far removed from the people. So we walked all the way to the back of the sanctuary. And there we were pouring, it was my job to pour the water in the wine. The other boy was holding the towel. And as I was pouring the wine, the priest takes the chalice. And when he's done and you, you want, he wants you to stop, he raises the chalice and you stop pouring. Well, I was pouring the wine and Monsignor Waterson raised the chalice and it hit the cruet and it went, And he leaned down like this. And he looked at me and he said, You goddamn jackass. All the breath left my chest. I could feel the hairs on the back of my head starting to rise up. And I, and, and, and I, just, I just looked up at him, and he stared down at me with this horrid look. And then suddenly the ceiling of the sanctuary opened up, and this lightning bolt came down, and then boom, struck me right there in the back of the sanctuary. I was reduced to a pile of ashes. And out of those ashes, I rose up like the phoenix. I rose up and I thought to myself, this man 
this man has used the Lord's name in vain. He is the Lord himself, and he used his, his own name in vain to condemn me to hell. I don't know how I got through the rest of the Mass, but I did. I said the prayers. We did the communion. We walked back into the, into the sacristy, and he turned around, and he turned to me, and he looked and said, What's your name? And I said, um, m- 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 My name is Ken. He said, No. What's your last name? And I thought, oh no, my parents are going to get excommunicated or something like that. This is, this is really bad. And I said, my, 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 my last name is, is, is Gallopo. And he turned around and he finished doing what he was doing and left. And I was there. I was in shock. I walked to the other room. I took off the cassock and I put my stuff and I went back to school and the rest of the day I just sat there kind of stunned. And I wasn't, didn't know what to do. But it was at that point when I realized this mystery that there was nothing there that really held me. To be in this, this institution with this man who, who just really imparted so much fear that I wanted no part of it. But I was going to this Catholic school and I continued to do that for the rest of my time there through being a senior in high school. But I continued being an altar boy and I said masses and I later said some masses when I was in eighth grade with Monsignor Watterson. And I don't know if he remembered me, but he never spoke a word to me at all. And it took about, I think it was my junior year, when I decided I was going to try not to go to church and see what would happen. And I sat in the parking lot, and I was kind of waiting there for that hair to rise up and that lightning bolt to come down, but it never happened. And I thought, i got a year and a half to get out of this place unscathed because I want no part of this. Well, I was doing pretty good, and I got to my last month as a senior, and I was standing there at my locker, and I realized that I had forgotten my homework, and I slammed the locker, and I said, ah, shit! And then I saw at the corner of my eye this nun. She was standing there in the door of the classroom on the other side of the lockers, and when she saw me, she had this horrid, stern face, and she started marching down the hall with that look like, I have you now. And then as I turned to look toward her, I saw a priest come out of the office, and he started to come towards me. And I thought, oh man, I'm going to get it now. I'm going to get like two barrels of that shotgun. Boom! I'm going to get detention, double detention. This is the horrid thing that's... And I said, oh... And they walked down the hall, and the priest was a step ahead of that nun. And as he walked up, he put his hand on my shoulder, and I felt my hair rise up on my head. And as he put his hand on my shoulder, he said, Practicing your Latin, Mr. Gallopo? Conjugating the verb shit, shisti, shite? Ah, I like a student who, who, who studies during his spare time. 
And the nun gave me this horrid look. And she looked at me, and then she looked at the priest, and she turned around, and she walked back into the classroom. And the priest walked back into the office. I didn't even know who this priest was. I still don't even know what his name was. He was a visiting priest who came to teach the freshman class. But I don't know who he was, but he saved my sorry goddamn jackass that day. And that's when I realized that a compassionate God can be embodied here on this earth in priest clothes. Thank you very much. So again for Ken Gallopo. Wonderful, absolutely wonderful story. Well, first of all, can we have a hand for everybody that was on our show tonight? Sandy Marks, Ken Gallopo, Dave Lawson, Carla Katz, uh, Jew Trader Wolf. Um, just absolutely wonderful. I want to thank all the storytellers. Um, we want to, in this storytelling series, we're going to be having the first Friday of each, uh, each month from, uh, the next show is October 5th, and after that is uh, November 2nd. Then we're going to have the Liar Show in the first uh, uh, Friday of December. The Liar Show is four storytellers telling a story, and then uh, one of them is lying, and you get to guess through interrogation, which one is lying. So uh, there you go. So we want to promote the um, craft of storytelling because it is the oldest art that there is. So um, can we have, uh, is, are all the, is Sandy and Carla, you guys still here? Can we bring all the tellers up on stage, please? I just want to give them a nice, another round of applause. And I also want to thank you guys for coming out here and, and supporting storytelling. I want to thank you very, very much. Whoever is here, is Jude here? Jude? Uh, David had a catch a uh, train. Uh, so I just want to say again, thank you to Ken Gallopo, uh, Carla Katz, Jude Trader Wolf, and Sandy Marks for a great story night of storytelling. And thanks for having us. Check the website. There's going to be some great, great spoken word. There's Julia Scotti, who's coming up, very good friend of mine. There's Mike Dugan, who's doing his one-person show called Men Fake Foreplay. Uh, great show. And, of course, coming up the fr first Friday of each night. Yes, even the title makes me laugh. Uh, it's a nonfiction. It's a nonfiction, nonfiction story. Thank you. Take care. Good night. And thank you to the uh, um, Hopewell Theater. Good night. For more information on This Really Happened and other programs in our selectively eclectic lineup, please visit HopewellTheater.com.